Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number seven, an Old Testament survey from Abraham to modern Israel. Well, this will be our seventh week now that we've spent connecting the dots of historical biblical events beginning from the time of Abraham. To this point, we've covered about 14 centuries. And we've arrived at about about uh, 600 B.C. Now, we followed along as Abraham was singled out by the Lord to create a special people, the Hebrews separated from the rest of humanity to be his servants, his representatives on earth. And then we saw Abraham's grandson, Jacob, given a special anointing as the patriarch of 12 tribes who would be called after the new name that the Lord gave to Jacob, Israel. Israel. A relatively small piece of land was claimed by God for himself. He gave it over to this separated people, the Hebrews, for them to live in as leaseholders, Canaan. But first, the 70 or so offspring of Jacob were driven to Egypt in order that they could survive a regional famine. And they prospered for a long time, beginning with the goodwill that was afforded to them by Jacob's second youngest son, Joseph, who had become, miraculously, second in command over all of Egypt. But later, Egypt turned against Joseph's people. They subjugated them. Nonetheless, their population increased enormously, even during their time of oppression and slavery. But when it was time, the Lord sent Moses, a member of the tribe of Levi, to redeem the Israelites from their Egyptian oppression. God decimated Egypt in order to persuade the Pharaoh to let his people go. Next, Moses led them to Mount Sinai, where these two to three million Israelite refugees met the same God who had spoken to Moses at this same place in a burning bush, perhaps only a couple of years earlier. The Lord set up this new relationship with his people Israel by giving them a divinely inspired manual a manual for living the life of a redeemed people that manual was the Torah and among other things the Torah established a well defined moral code it set up a priesthood with specific instructions for them it gave the, the, the Israelites the boundaries for human to human and human to God interaction. It gave them and, and revealed to them God's nature and His character and then of course a pathway for a right relationship with Him. He even explained how the earth and the universe were formed and he began to imply that a Savior and a mediator greater than Moses was needed and it would be provided by God eventually. After 40 years of camping out in the desert as a people without a country, 
The Israelites obeyed the Lord's instructions. They crossed over the Jordan River from the east to the west. They began to conquer the already inhabited land of Canaan. The twelve sons of Jacob, better known as the twelve tribes of Israel, each were given specific districts to live in and to govern. Some were more successful than others, both in ridding their districts of the enemy and in achieving prosperity and peace. But because of foolishly establishing peace treaties with the inhabitants of Canaan whom the Lord said Israel was to drive out of the land, if they wouldn't go, they were to be killed. The twelve tribes were now heavily influenced by their paganism. Even more, some of these Canaanite peoples were none too happy to have all these Israelites around. So they attacked and they harassed several of the twelve tribes. So God raised up special leaders among some of these tribes to deal with the problems. They were called Shoftim, judges. And after some 250 to 300 years of what has come to be known, the era of the judges, the attacks of the many Gentile peoples within and without Canaan became too much to bear. And the 12 Israelite tribal chieftains agreed they needed to be united. They needed to be led by one person, a king. The first king was chosen. He was anointed by the prophet and judge Samuel and the era of the kings dawned. Israel was not fully united until the second king of Israel, David, was coronated. And he was followed by his son Solomon who increased the power and the size of Israel. But that experiment lasted only 80 years. And shortly after Solomon's death, the nation of Israel entered into civil war and it divided into two kingdoms. Judah to the south, Ephraim Israel to the north. And since Jerusalem and the temple were in Judah, well, the people of Judah then tended to stay more pure in their worship of Jehovah. But up north, Jeroboam led his people into multiple God worship, into idolatry. Well, over the years, the Lord sent a number of prophets to warn Ephraim Israel to turn away from their idolatry and their wickedness, but often these prophets were just run out of town. Eventually the Lord followed through with his warnings. He raised up the Assyrians as a huge empire who came down from the north and they attacked Ephraim Israel and they scattered this conquered people all over Asia. The fall of Samaria, the capital city of Ephraim, Israel, occurred about 722 B.C. This is where the legend of the ten lost tribes of Israel was born. To the south, Judah survived by making a treaty with Assyria. However, in time, a new power arose in the region, Babylonia. Babylonia eventually took Assyria's empire away from them and they too made a treaty with Judah. However, unwise leadership in Judah led to Babylon losing their patience with them. So, a huge army came down to Jerusalem and attacked them. Judah was sent into exile now to Babylon and that is where we'll begin this lesson. Now, I hope you have found this survey helpful as each of the many so-called Bible stories shows itself to be just a, a milestone 
along the way of redemption history. But like the mile markers along a highway, each is relative to the previous one as a measurement of our progress. To isolate one milestone as, as a standalone feature, well, that can be informative, but it misses the point if the connection is not made between the ones before it and after it. So let's continue today as Babylon attacks Jerusalem. The first attacks by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon upon Jerusalem happened around 600 BC. And among those first taken to Babylon were the prophets Yechesiel, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Daniel. Now, Daniel, due to his academic and leadership skills, was put into the palace service of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Yechesiel, Ezekiel, however, was sent to the countryside. And there he prophesied about the coming destruction, total destruction of Judah. He was not well received. Nobody likes the messengers of that kind of news. Now, as ruthless as the Babylonian army was, the citizens of Babylon were gracious. They were tolerant of these new foreigners. The Jews were permitted to to move around and meet freely to buy land. They could own businesses. They even practiced their worship and, and religion to an extent, provided the gods of Babylon were also honored. Within a few years, Ezekiel turned from telling the Jews to have courage, have hope in their subjugation to exhorting them to prepare to go back to Judah, Yehuda, as a free people because many had adopted the rather attractive Babylonian ways and become quite comfortable in their new home. Now throughout the Babylonian Empire, several of the conquered nations convened secret meetings. They were plotting rebellion. Pharaoh made a deal with Zedekiah of Judah. And when Nebuchadnezzar got wind of that pact, he marched his army towards Jerusalem, Jerusalem, yet again. Zedekiah ran out to meet him and assured him of his loyalty to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar relented, and but not long after that, Judah openly rebelled against Babylon. This time, King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't swayed. He laid siege to the holy city, and it began in the winter of 587 B.C. The siege lasted for 18 months. By the time Jerusalem fell, some inhabitants had turned to cannibalism to survive. Bodies, dead from disease and starvation, were stacked up like firewood. Fully one-third of the people died. When the Babylonian army entered the city, they put half of those who remained to the sword. The rest were spared and used as forced labors, but the question arises, why did the Jews resist so fervently? I mean, surely they knew they were no match for Nebuchadnezzar's armies, and if they simply opened their gates to the invaders, the worst might have been deportation like their brothers before them. What could have caused these Jews to choose slow, painful death over life somewhere else? Two reasons stand out. First, they believed that their ally Egypt would come to their rescue. 
because a secure and independent Judah was essential to keeping Babylon from taking Egypt. Judah was the perfect place for an enemy to launch an attack upon Egypt. And second, the thought of living on foreign soil away from their temple was just too shocking to consider as a viable alternative even to death. Well, in the first years of their captivity in Babylon, these exiled Jews were despondent. They couldn't be comforted. But what irony. Think of it. Here they were, back in the birthplace of their forefather, Abraham. The very place God had instructed Abraham to leave was now where they found themselves. Even though it was 12 centuries later. No doubt this irony didn't go unnoticed. But now they were captives. Every new day was darker than the day before. Though they were treated considerably better than they had expected, the very air they breathed was laden with the stench of paganism. They felt they were living in a defi- uh, this kind of a defiled existence in Babylon because the Jews had become isolationists as a result of these massive reforms that had been put in place by King Josiah after the rediscovery of the Torah. They took God's command to stay separate from the world quite seriously and quite literally. So they felt that the very dust of Babylonian soil that accumulated on the bottoms of their sandals that was defiled. The only holy air to breathe was in Judah. The only holy soil to grow food upon was in Judah. The food they ate up in Babylon was, was unclean. It wasn't kosher. They were as the walking dead. They had no way to atone for their sins as the sacrificial system and the priesthood was now inoperable without the temple and it lay in ruins. Now although the Jews were a disconsolate community, nonetheless they remained as a community. They had not been scattered and dispersed throughout the Babylonian Empire. Generally speaking, they were living together. But they were living in Babylon. Babylon was a resplendent city. Huge for that day. It was almost a mile square. It had a huge population in it that worshipped every sort of deity in the, the many temples to the gods that adorned the city. The river Euphrates flowed through and around the city and it was tamed with the use of dikes and canals and dams and bridges. The land outside the city was rich and fertile. That's where the bulk of the Jewish deportees lived, near the Chabar Canal, just outside the walls of that great city. It was in a town called Tel Aviv. Their survival required that the Jewish exiles in Babylon establish a means of a livelihood. And quickly, this was not a welfare state they had been carried off to. They immediately began to farm to reestablish the crafts of their trades. They still needed clothing and shoes and cookware and food and, and wood for their fires. And so they built homes, small open markets to conduct day-to-day business. They met to discuss their plight. The cause of their misery, they agreed. It was clear. It was due to the sins of that evil king, Manasseh, 
some generations earlier because that had caused God's judgment to fall upon them. The prophets had warned them. They had, they had ignored all the signals and it happened precisely as foretold. Well, among the exiles lived Ezekiel, a prophet taken in the first deportation from Jerusalem. Now, while Daniel lived and prophesied among royalty in the grandest city in the entire world, Babylon, it was left to Ezekiel to prophesy to the common folks. God gave to Ezekiel the duty to make the Jews aware of the real reason for their destruction and to lead them to repent inwardly, taking personal responsibility for their offenses before the God of Israel. Later, God gave Ezekiel different marching orders. He was to give the Jews hope for restoration. A time would come when God would forgive them. They would return home. They'd rebuild their holy temple and reestablish their holy city. How is all this going to happen? Ezekiel told them a new empire from the north was going to rise up and they would destroy Babylon. Just as Babylon had risen up and destroyed Assyria. And the leaders of this future unnamed world power would allow the Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem, and they would even help them build a new temple. The Jews met, they talked endlessly of such things. God is going to do this to glorify His own name, so let's not fall to the corruption of the other peoples who live in Babylon. Let's hold true to the Torah, to the Mosaic laws. Worship only the one true God, Yehovah. He'll continue to love us. He'll care for us, even in this impure place. Our redemption is near. Oh, what a hope this was. So the Jews held tightly to one another. Intermarriage with pagans was forbidden. Although as time passed, it became commonplace. They met to worship in their homes, not to sacrifice, not to sacrifice. Because the only allowable place for sacrifice was the temple in Jerusalem, now destroyed. Rather, they meant to pray. They meant to study the word of God, the Torah, using whatever oral traditions and perhaps some portions of scrolls that they'd been able to bring with them. They clung to their Jewish identity. Many continued with their loyalties to, to elders and clans. And it was those who continued to listen to their priests and scribes and prophets that continued to trust in God. Others opted to cozy up to this dazzling power and, the, and grandeur of, uh, of their tolerant conqueror to benefit from the situation rather than to fight it. Well, the years passed. Scribes set about copying scrolls, writing down memorized scriptures and teachings so they wouldn't be forgotten. But they no longer wrote only in ancient Hebrew. Now they wrote in Aramaic, a cousin language of Hebrew. The companion of the spoken Aramaean that was the everyday script and language of the empire. Some Jews took on Babylonian names. The names of the months of the years became Babylonian and they still are in use that way in our time. As with the immigrants who came to, the, to, to this new hope of America and they arrived in New York, at first they instinctively sought to live in familiar cultural groupings that we call ghettos. 
So the Jews found staying separate was possible only inwardly, only to a degree. Most of the Jews, almost unconsciously, found themselves integrating with the mainstream Babylonian culture. Perhaps not fully. They didn't give up their strong religious beliefs. But certainly, they separated and compartmentalized those beliefs from the realities and practicalities of everyday life. This should be pretty easy for us moderns to understand. I mean, doesn't society today today demand of us to compartmentalize our spiritual beliefs as something completely separate and irrelevant to all other facets of our lives? But there in Babylon, in the heartland of the pagan world, God separated the faithful from the unfaithful and he wrung the paganism out of the Jews just as he had wrung the Egypt out of the Israelites in the desert wilderness of the Sinai 800 years earlier. Up in Babylon, however, the ancient culture of the Israelites died. A new culture of the Jews was born. Now one could reasonably say that Hebrewism gave way to Judaism. A culture that was going to serve them quite well right through to the present. Unfortunately, what came with this cultural shift was a bent towards adding to, often overriding, the Holy Scriptures with new customs and new traditions. Judaism was based on a newfound intellectualism that produced series after series of rabbinical rulings and interpretations that eventually led to a doctrine that generally forsook the Torah of Moshe. It replaced it with tradition that today is called halakha, Jewish law. God's word replaced with man's word. It was also in Babylon that the synagogue system was born. I want to examine this significant shift in Hebrew worship practices for just a minute. See, up to the time the Jews were carried off to Babylon, their worship centered at the temple in Jerusalem. Though within each Jewish town and village, people certainly celebrated the Sabbath ritual in their own homes, and as a matter of fact, that was its design and purpose. However, the temple was the only place where the only provision for a Jew to have atonement for his or her sins could occur, and this was accomplished with animal sacrifice. And the temple could only exist in Jerusalem, and this was God's direct scriptural instruction. Well, as the Jews were now 800 miles from Jerusalem, and the temple lay demolished there, the Jews were in a bind. They lived on unclean land, dealt daily with unclean people, surely ate much unclean food, and worse, they now had no way to atone for their sins before God, so they walked around in a perpetual state of impurity and in sin guilt. What to do about this intolerable situation must have occupied their daily thoughts to a great degree. Now, from another perspective, 
This situation of oppression and discomfort was exactly what God wanted for them. This impure condition was part of God's punishment against them. God wanted them to understand just how serious sin is. How grievous their offenses were. Offenses that had simply become part of their everyday lives back in Judah. God wanted them to have no way to atone for their sins for a time, about 70 years. So that they could see how wonderful this atoning provision was that God had supplied for them. How much they'd abused it. But the Jews decided to try to find a way around this problem. The answer they found was twofold. They decided that the study and the knowledge of the law, the Torah, was in itself an atoning act of righteousness and they declared it so. And they more or less reinvented the temple and came up with the synagogue. A place of worship where communal meeting and learning and praying would take the place of sacrifice. Sounds nice. It's not necessarily a good thing. God didn't give them this choice. They invented it. And the synagogue system is at the heart of what was soon to become the true driving force and authority behind Judaism, which is tradition. Now, I do not want to paint a picture of the synagogue system as being something inherently evil or a wrong institution, anything like that. Not at all. But the synagogue was far more than just a building, a commonplace large enough for Jews to come together and meet as Jews. The fact remains that whereas likely in his first few years of existence it was little more than a place for a displaced people to fellowship and to worship, in a short time it evolved into a man-made religious system designed to rule over Jewish society, to create an alternative means to atonement for sin and therefore righteousness before God. Which, of course, is an oxymoron. Because no man-made system can atone for sin, nor can it attain righteousness for us. The synagogue in time so dominated the Jewish people's worship lives that when, after 70 years in Babylon, The Persians overcame the Babylonians, took their empire away from them. The Jews were freed. They were given permission to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple. Yet, they retained the synagogue system. The alternative system became the accepted system and the most desired system. One could reasonably see that the vast bulk of Jews who remained living up in Babylon, then Persia, those empires, they needed houses of meeting. They needed houses of worship because they lived so far away from the temple down in the Holy Lands. Yet, how about those Jews who moved back to Judah and took the synagogue system with them? Understand, God in His mercy allowed the temple to be rebuilt. And that God-ordained sacrificial system for atonement of sin to to begin once again. But now, it wasn't enough. 
they accepted some of God's ways of the Torah, but they also added their new Babylonian-born religious philosophy to it. And as is man's habit, they generally liked their new ways better than God's old ways. In fact, by Christ's day, some scholars argue that there is ample evidence to prove that the Jewish people had actually built a synagogue inside the grounds of the rebuilt temple. At the least we know there were many synagogues, even in Jerusalem, because several of them from that era have been found. Now, before Christians get too judgmental, or high and mighty about all this, it'd be wise for us to remember one thing. The church system, ironically, was modeled after the synagogue system. A Gentile model, for sure. But a nearly parallel model, nonetheless. The typical physical church model, that is a fancy building with a raised platform, an altar from which a minister speaks, and seating surrounding the platform, even the liturgy, the music, the singing, the praying, collecting money, all are near duplicates of the synagogue system. And of course, that's easy to understand since the first several scores of thousands of believers were Jews, and Jewish leaders were the leaders of the first so-called churches even for a while after Gentile believers began to outnumber Jewish believers. This cultural shift away from a a biblically-based Hebrewism, to coin a term, whose foundation was the Torah of Moses, to a Babylonian-born Judaism manifested itself even in the practical matters of everyday behavior and life during and even after their exile to Babylon because it was in Babylon that Jews learned several new trades that they had only years earlier had shunned for purity reasons. Among them was commerce and banking. In Judah, the Jews had been primarily herders and farmers and crafts and peasant tasks and operation, uh, occupations rather for the most part. In Judah, merchants were often looked upon as evil. And because so many merchants were foreigners, they were seen as participating in legalized stealing. In fact, the derogatory term Canaanite and merchant became one and the same. But now, ironically, as a consequence of their exile to Babylon, they became bankers and lawyers. Professions that in the future would become associated with Jewishness. And it remains so to this day. Professions that would, over the centuries, serve to help the Jews garner much wealth and power, but along with it, much scorn and persecution. Well, it's about 540 B.C. And up to the northeast of Babylon lay Persia, a land ruled by by, uh, Babylon's ally and partner, in empire building, media. Now Persia was governed by King Cyrus, but he was a vassal king. 
under the control of the Medes. King Cyrus led a Persian army in rebellion against the Medes. And he won, and he took over a portion of their empire. And the rule of the Persians spread like a friendly virus throughout the region. Isaiah was prophesying again. He was saying the Persians are God's judgment on those nations who have mistreated his people, the Jews. So soon Persia marched into that great city of Babylon and took it without a struggle. Yet King Cyrus was no bloodthirsty barbarian. He was an enlightened ruler. His reign and methods were unique in history up to this time. He was a beneficent dictator, idealistic, a spiritual man. He perceived that his purpose on earth was as the inheritor and successor of the Babylonian Empire. And further, that his, it was his duty to restore civilized humanity, peace, to make reparations to all those nations that Babylon had enslaved. Essentially, he felt he was here to create a new world order. The Bible presents us with a pretty magnanimous view of Cyrus, the new king of the world. Ancient records of the Persians and tens of other vassal nations confirm the biblical account. Well, King Cyrus worshipped in the Babylonian temple of Marduk. By the way, Marduk was simply a Chaldean name for Nimrod. This was partly as a sign to the citizens of Babylon that he was a respecter of their culture. Can we still visualize our president, George W. Bush, standing in a Muslim mosque a few days after 9-11, praising the God of Islam for the same purpose? The conquered peoples were immediately smitten with King Cyrus's sincere and progressive ways. He ordered all the stolen captured gods and idols returned to their cities of origin. He ordered his charges to treat the conquered people with decency. He tolerated all gods, all religions. He ordered that any group from any religious cult that wanted to rebuild their demolished temples and altars should be allowed to do so. The Jewish captives were now free to go home to migrate back to their homeland in a second exodus. Cyrus urged them to rebuild their temple. Well, about 50 years had passed since Jerusalem was emptied of its finest at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, most of the original Jewish deportees are now dead, or they're very old. A whole new generation of Jews was born, and even another generation after them. They were raised in Babylon. Babylon's the only home they knew. And when King Cyrus of Persia issued a proclamation urging the Jews to return home and rebuild their temple, and their city, we learned that really only about 50,000 of them took him up on his offer. The Bible record, uh, record rather, gives us an, an inventory of exactly who left Babylon. It even lists the families, the count from each family that departed Babylon. However, when adding up the list of numbers of those who immigrated from Babylon, we find an anomaly. Because the list of who left falls about 11,000 short of the number that's said to have arrived back in Jerusalem. Very interesting. 
it appears that about 39,000 of those 50,000 who arrived back in the land were the Jews from Babylon and probably their house servants. Of the 11,000 that were unaccounted for, they probably were tiny remnants of Ephraim Israel, those ten tribes. What we call today the ten lost tribes of Israel. Those that had been dispersed by the Assyrians two centuries earlier. It's also possible that along with these Ephraim Israelite hitchhikers, several non-Israelite but Semitic tribal members attached themselves to the returnees to achieve that larger number. Anyway, they were all apparently accepted, but they were quickly absorbed into the Jewish tribe. Well, it's not long after their return that we have hints of Ephraim Israelites living in Judah. Because we read of 12 bullocks and 12 goats, an obvious reference to the 12 tribes being sacrificed for the sake of all Israel. Now, no doubt... Requirement number one was for this handful of Ephraim Israelites and and non-Hebrew foreigners to swear allegiance to Jehovah the God of Israel and no other. But second, and of near equal importance, would have been this requirement for an unwavering loyalty to the tribe of Judah. This loyalty meant giving up whatever identity they may have had with their old tribes. Therefore, with just an oath, these various groups became Jews. There's also another very interesting outcome from this reunion and this intermixing of tribes that, although speculative, would seem to be almost automatic for the minds of those returning Jews. See, Ezekiel prophesied that eventually both houses of Israel, that is, members of the two different kingdoms, that resulted from the civil war and it split Israel, the house of Ephraim and the house of Judah, that they would come back together to to, to reform the whole house of Israel. Those up in Babylon that heard Ezekiel speak this mystical pronouncement, well, many hearing it directly from his own mouth were likely these zealous Jews that left the comforts of Babylon and had the courage to venture back to Judah, probably expecting this reunion. And on their journey home, as they encountered a few remnants of their long-lost brothers, the Ephraimites of the house of Ephraim, it surely would have seemed to them this most joyous and wonderful fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy was happening. So upon arriving in Judah, they must have felt once again whole, all Israel, back in the land. Of course, their exuberance had failed to take heed to the other parts of the same prophecy that could not have made their happy reunion the one that Ezekiel was speaking of. Rather, it was something that would have had to have occurred far into the future, in the end times. Yet, from that day to our time, the Jews have stubbornly insisted they are the representatives of all twelve tribes of Israel. Mistake to be sure that only in the early 21st century has it been made clear by the rediscovery and the actual return of some of the ten tribes who retained their original tribal names and tribal allegiances. But what's all too clear is that the vast majority of Jews, something around 95%, 
chose to stay behind in what was now the Persian Empire. Why? Because for the new generation of Jews born in exile, Babylon, now Persia, was their home. And we see this same phenomenon today as only about half of the world's Jews have returned to their homeland. The remainder, the majority of which live in the United States, have no interest in leaving their comfortable and secure life in America for an uncertain future in Israel. Babylon, you see, had a very robust economy. Farming was much easier and more reliable in the Fertile Crescent than in that rocky soil of Judah. They already had a comfortable life. The Babylonians were at the forefront of progressive social policies, new technologies for their era, and the Persians were determined to advance things even further. Simply put, the Babylonian Jews found the Gentile culture attractive, economically advantageous. Jewish schools and synagogues had been set up and were operating. Although not yet called rabbis, Jewish leaders had evolved from being teachers of scripture to becoming religious authorities, commentators, makers of doctrines and traditions. Thus Babylon was and would remain for centuries to come one of the foremost centers of Jewish religious authority for this newly formed Judaism. It was primarily older and more pious Jews. Those were the ones who made that difficult and long 800 mile journey back to Judah. And when they arrived and they looked upon the ruins of their city and the temple, it must have been quite a bittersweet experience. They found the uneducated peasant caretakers, a mixture of Gentiles and Jews living in the hillsides. The returning Jews with a chip on their collective shoulders regarded themselves as the true remnant of Israel and the current inhabitants of Jerusalem as something less. And they were intent on establishing their new Jewish culture, invented and refined up in Babylon, revolving around their God, their rapidly evolving traditions, their newfound professions, and the synagogue. A schism quickly arose between the Babylonian Jewish returnees and those few Jews who had remained in the land for the last half century. Power struggles, issues of proper worship and loyalties to differing sets of religious leaders serving to create a very deep divide between the Jewish returnees and the indigenous Jewish residents of Judah. Ezra led the way to rebuild the sacrificial altar at the temple and the Jews celebrated Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. Within a few more months, the foundation was laid for a new temple. But upon seeing its meager size, only a few were joyful about it. Those older men who remembered the grandeur of Solomon's temple, the first temple, wept over this modest structure that they were building. 
work continued on the temple and the city walls, but it was continually slowed up and sabotaged by various groups who were unhappy with what they felt was this haughty attitude of these newcomers, these people who came down from Babylon. So work ground to a halt for 15 years. In 522 BC, King Darius found his way to the throne of Persia and he was as sympathetic to the Jews as was the former king, Cyrus. A second wave now of Babylonian Jews decided to migrate back to Judah under the encouragement of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Work on the temple was resumed. King Darius ordered the temple to be completed. He even offered Persian treasury money to help out. Soon the temple was completed, but it took many more years and the strong leadership of Nehemiah to fully restore the walls and the buildings around Jerusalem. Well, we now enter the 400-year intertestamental period, also known today as the Silent Period. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah are the last of the historical documents of the Old Testament. Not until just before the birth of Christ, the beginning books of the New Testament, can we once again turn to the Bible for information on the progress of the Jews. See, this silent period is actually covered by what we today call the Apocrypha. But it was removed from Protestant Bibles in the 1800s at the behest of the British and American Bible Societies. It's about 440 B.C. And Jerusalem is once again a bustling Jewish city. The Greeks had emerged from their dark age. They became a dynamic and influential society in the region. They would eventually displace Persia as the rulers of the world. Hundreds of Greek cities had been built throughout the Mediterranean region with new settlements sprouting up in every direction. Each Greek city of any consequence was an independent walled city-state. The foundation of each city was family and their own gods. We know of the Greeks as intellectuals, pragmatic thinkers, societal experimenters, innovators. They were also at once equal part deep religionists and mystical sorcerers. A very strange combination of the rational and the irrational. And this was widely adopted now throughout the Greek and then the Roman empires. Now key to understanding this time in history is grasping that the Greek culture was a way of life that was desired. It was imitated by most nations in the Middle East. Also in Asia Minor, those nations that surrounded the Mediterranean Sea. Even reaching to eastern parts of Europe. The concept is not unlike the desire we see in so many nations today for what we loosely call Western culture. With its capitalism and democracy and religious freedoms and this all-devouring desire for, for wealth and for personal comfort. Well, next week we'll resume with the conquests of Alexander the Great, who would change the world in a very dramatic fashion.